that's why you need the, the theaters, because you need the theaters to kind of focus the attention on the film for that brief period of time. So then at least that core group of people can say, I saw that film. And then when it does hit streaming or it does hit Netflix, they say, you have to go watch this like immediately. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Rebecca Polly, Deputy Editor of Box Office Pro, the only publication dedicated exclusively to the theatrical exhibition landscape. I'm joined today by co-host Russ Fisher, Editorial Director of Box Office Studios, which provides editorial content to movie theaters. Uh, Russ, hey, how you doing this week? I'm doing well, thanks. So Russ, our, our main feature today is an interview with two members of the Charlotte Film Society who are working to bring a dedicated art house theater to a major American city that at this point uh, does not have one. That said, before we get to this, at this point on the top of the podcast is typically uh, where we go over any uh, major news items that have happened over the past week. And when we have a pretty big one to break down. So uh, we also have here as a guest to explain this, Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro. Uh, Daniel, what the heck went on with AMC stock this last week? So yeah, the, the big headline that occurred uh, over the past week had to do with the closest thing to a dos ex machina that we've seen on the stock market for movie theater stocks in this nightmare of a year. Just to give you some context, on January 5th, the AMC stock was trading right under $2, uh, a victim, of course, of the pandemic's impact on the economy. And on January 27th, after a flurry of trading, that stock went up to right under $20, a surge that happened really over the course of two days. Now, where did this surge in stock price come from? The easiest place to start without getting into too much detail links this to a number of posters, individual investors on a forum on the internet website Reddit that decided to look at some individual companies they wanted to support that are being uh, particularly distressed by the market right now. Now, this is part of a bigger narrative than movie theaters, part of a bigger narrative than just a Reddit forum. It's part of a larger disruption that's occurring in the stock market from retail investing that is now really bringing this direct-to-consumer approach to the stock market and in itself is bringing both positives and negatives. And it's, it's ironic, guys, that AMC's stock price actually benefited from this uh, direct-to-consumer disruption because, as we well know, as the leading exhibitor both in North America and in the world, AMC's stock has really been a lightning rod to a lot of reactions in the market at large to the direct-to-consumer revolution. The tables turned here, and in a very populist move, uh, AMC stock price shot way back up. Uh, Russ, you had mentioned offline that where it rose up was actually even higher than where it had been trading over the past couple of years. Yeah, and uh, if you look back at AMC's price over the last couple of years, the highest point was uh, where it hit a little over 1650 in mid-April 2019, which I think is uh, basically the Avengers Endgame time zone. So uh, at this, the point that it hit uh, just under 20 bucks last week uh, is higher than even it had been in the past two years, taking into account how AMC was doing well before the pandemic hit. So that's pretty remarkable. 
So, Daniel, I'm going to put you on the spot the same way that you've put our uh, other interview subjects on the spot. What questions do we still have now about the end point for this or the end game for this, if you will? Uh, there's, I think, too many questions to list right now, but let's go through the big uh, factors that we still have to clar clarify in the coming weeks. There are legal implications in terms of really just from a conceptual level in terms of how involved the SEC or the government should be involved, how involved uh, specific retail trading apps uh, should or shouldn't be involved in this, the role of, of hedge funds and in investing. Uh, there's just a lot of big picture things that I think it's it would be a disservice to our listeners right now to, to try to guess or, or speculate on which way that can go. This is very much a much larger story beyond the movie theater sphere that will likely play out for the rest of, of the year. In, in the immediate level, how this relates to AMC, I think a big question that we all have is the long-term and the short-term impact of all of this investment coming in. Are these investors long-term investors? Are they going to stick with the stock? Who's selling early? Who's sticking, uh, who's sticking around? Again, I think time will tell on how AMC decides to use this, uh, this small miracle, really, uh, in the stock market to its advantage. That's a big question that, that remains to be seen. And I guess ultimately, to wrap this up, guys, you know, it, it's an unlikely situation. Certainly none of us could have expected AMC to be caught up in, in this situation. But I can tell you, stepping back from this particular case, looking at the ride that AMC stock has had over the past five, 10 years, really as, the, as an industry leader, as a sector leader, I think in many ways, the company has been unfairly maligned as a, as a lightning rod for the entire industry by the changes in consumer habits and the changes in the home entertainment market, where investors have unfairly hit that AMC stock when making positions on movie on movie theaters in general. I think specifically to the impact that MoviePass, uh, a company that had a very disruptive and disastrous business model that itself went through a big, big gain in the stock market, dragged AMC down while it was living the high life, only to just crash and burn. Meanwhile, the collateral damage was completely absorbed by AMC stock, and they never were never really able to recover from uh, the impact that MoviePass had on their stock in particular. So a lot of questions there, Rebecca, very few answers. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how this develops. But at the end of the day, uh, if this was going to happen to any stock in the movie theater sector, I think really looking at how the chips had fallen over the past five years, I'm glad if someone was able to benefit, at least it's AMC. AMC has been a scapegoat for so long. I'm, I'm glad they were able to get something <laughs> out of this strange situation that they so often find themselves in. Uh, now, Daniel, before we let you go, there's actually, uh, you know, strangely, another bit of good news that, that we have to break down, uh, specifically the box office performance over the weekend of The Little Things, a Warner Brothers release. What went down with that? What did we uh, what did we see in terms of box office? Hey, it was a positive debut, a uh, new movie coming into the market. The market needs this, even if it's a day-in-day -day, uh, premiere, as it is as a Warner Brothers title. So it premiered on HBO Max at the same time that it uh, came out in theaters. 
It was a $4 million plus start here domestically for the little things. Again, not a huge hit, but a clear number one in a market that still has very, very few star-driven titles uh, to count. So we'll see where that goes. We saw a heavy drop for Wonder Woman 1984 after a positive start at the box office. Many are claiming that this is due perhaps to that day and date availability. We could also say that the title, like several other DC Extended Universe titles that somehow disappoint or somewhat disappoint uh, audiences, have also seen a similar drop. We can look at titles like uh, Batman versus Superman or even Suicide Squad as titles that started well and then progressively worsened. So I'm excited to see where this goes in terms of profitability of for the new Warner Brothers title. We'll have uh, at least an extra data point on that day and date Warner Brothers experiment. Well, thanks, Daniel, for those insights. They're terrific. I'm still trying to figure out the AMC thing myself, and I'm going to continue trying to puzzle it out for days to come, as I'm sure most everybody else is. Now, Rebecca, a couple of days ago, you and I spoke to two guys from the Charlotte Film Society, and I'm excited to present that interview now with you. We're joined this week by President Brad Ritter and Program Director Jay Morong of the Charlotte Film Society. Charlotte is the largest city in North Carolina, the 15th largest city in the United States, and the fifth fastest growing city in the United States. It's also the city where I was born and raised, which is why I was particularly devastated to read in May 2020 that Charlotte had been left without a dedicated art house cinema. That's due to the permanent closure of the two-screen Manor Theater. An institution in the Charlotte cultural space, the Manor first opened in 1947. In 2005, it was acquired by Regal, which in May of 2020 confirmed that the theater would not be reopening following the city's mandated COVID-19 closures. Bradley and Jay, in addition to their work with the Charlotte Film Society, were the general manager and a projectionist, respectively, at the Manor. With the Manor Theater now permanently closed and Charlotte lacking an art house space, they and the rest of the Charlotte Film Society have redoubled their efforts through fundraising and community outreach to bring a nonprofit neighborhood theater to the Queen City. Brad and Jay, thank you so much for joining us. As someone who's from Charlotte and who loves uh, independent films and, and art house theaters, this is kind of my perfect podcast subject. So I'm, I'm very excited to speak with you about what's going on with the Charlotte indie scene. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So I moved out of Charlotte in 08. And, you know, in that time, kind of in my my early to mid 20s, there were a few theaters where you could reliably see more kind of, you know, obscure niche art house foreign titles. There was the Park Terrace. There was Ballantyne, which you had to drive <laughs> forever to get to. And of course, there was the Manor, which was dedicated to those art house films. What's the state of things for art house cinema in Charlotte now? And how did we get to that point? Uh, it's actually pretty easy. The state of art house right now in Charlotte is non-existent. We went from three dedicated art house cinemas down to zero in two and a half years. And we went from 13 dedicated screens down to zero. So it was pretty rapid. Uh, it's not that the art houses were not profitable or, you know, losing money. It was more real estate uh, issues where the owners of the property decided to go in and um, 
take over and, and redevelop the properties that the theaters were on. Uh, and in Park Terrace's case, that was uh, it is still a theater, but they wanted at the time Regal was the the tenant, and they wanted Regal to invest a lot of money into it, and you know bring in the the beer and wine and, and the the food, and Regal didn't want to put that kind of investment in it, so they uh, it switched over to AMC. But Ballantyne and Manor, at the end of the day, was property related. So it, I mean, it closed in in. Well, it closed in March, and then it, because of COVID, and then in May it came out. Oh, we're not reopening it. Was it like COVID-related reasons, or I mean, I I know we've spoken before about in Charlotte. You know, there's a heavy construction blitz always. Things don't stay around. Yeah, the um, I, I've been at the Manor for 27 years, and I believe the first, probably my first week there, the rumors have always been that. Oh my gosh, the manor's closing. For a long time, it was going to be a Barnes and Noble bookstore, and it always survived all these rumors. So, I mean, we just got used to hearing them. And then when COVID shut the theater down back in mid mid March, I, I honestly thought we might not reopen. The last thing I did when we closed the final day was I punched out a, the last ticket at the uh, box office. And gave it to my assistant manager and told her that this might be the last ticket ever punched out at the manor. And she has since kept that ticket. And I don't know, maybe it'll end up on eBay one day. But um, <laughs> when we found out in um, May that it was going to close permanently, it really wasn't that much of a surprise having anticipated that this was the perfect cloak in, to shut the theater down under that, you know, COVID-19 and but um, there were rumors that the manor would close in December anyways, even if COVID-19 never came around. Yeah. So, I mean, the manor was was first built in, in 47, which makes it, in Charlotte terms, like a really, really, really old building. Yeah. It obviously didn't, it started as a single screen. It obviously didn't start as a, you know, a quote unquote art house cinema. What's the history of the manor been like over the decades? The history of the manor has been really interesting. I moved I moved to Charlotte in 2005 from the Boston area, and I've always been I don't know maybe as a New Englander I sort of I sort of feel like you you sort of become a de facto his, his, history buff just because you like walking around New England. It's like oh something happened you know a war started here, but uh, you know when I started working in movie theaters in in the Boston area in the in the 90s. And then into the 2000s, I, I became really fascinated with movie theater history. So when I moved to Charlotte in 2005, it, I, you know, it sort of became a thing. And I started working at the Manor as a projectionist. That I was like, "What is this little twin theater that's in a strip mall in this neighborhood? You know, like what's going on here?" And so, you know, in studying the history, the Manor's had a very, a very interesting history because you know when it started in 47. It opened with the Egg and I, which is like a mom pa kettle, you know, very family Fred McMurray type movie. I, I read that the promotion for that was they gave away chicken. They gave away chicks. They gave away baby chicks at at the premiere of the movie. You know, I'm sure I'm sure they were all. I don't want to be depressing, but killed by children uh, <laughs> over the next several days. You know, by accident. I'm saying, you know, you put them in the pocket, you leave me a jacket, whatever. I'm sure. But yeah, so it was, so it, it seemed like it would go in these like weird waves historically. It would, 
it, it, it seemed to operate as like a very strict kind of family cinema for a while, you know, playing like Disney films and, you know, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and j- just all of those kind of Disney nature films that they had, you know, where they would have like some someone would befriend a tiger or a lion or something, you know, Dor- Doris Day movies in the 50s. And then, and then somewhere in the 60s into the 70s, you know, every once in a while, there'd be like these weird periods of, you know, like, I, I, I'll just call them like saucier pictures, you know, like these, you know, these movies that seem to have like the words lust in the title or, or, you know, seem to be a little bit like, I mean, probably very tame movies, but we're a little naughty. And then it would go back to like, you know, playing sort of very safe, whatever the family films were, of the 70, you know, a, a re-release of The Sword and the Stone. And and then, they, and then you know, then they drop into playing some art house stuff or some foreign films, right? You know, in the late 70s. Yeah, okay, you know, here's a random foreign film. But then again, very quickly back to playing Greece. So we always had this kind of like, they seem to want to dip their toe in the water of kind of showing foreign films or showing things that were a little bit more transgressive or a little daring. But it was always, I think, just from probably a market standpoint, and because they were in a very sort of, you know, conservative neighborhood, they're in the Myers Park neighborhood in Charlotte, which which actually, in this last election, you know, voted like 70% for Trump. So it's still, in Charlotte, a very liberal city. This The neighborhood the manor was in is a very conservative neighborhood. You know, they would sort of show these Hollywood films. They, they they drift back and forth. And then, you know, when the film society, the Charlotte Film Society started doing things with them in the 80s, it seemed like even though they were doing that, they were getting more and more into the larger pockets of showing foreign and art house independent things. And it's because they had this relationship with the with the film society where, you know, people were coming there to see these foreign films that weren't getting shown anywhere else. And, you know, but that really lasted all the way up until the early 2000s where they would go back and forth between kind of mainstream, you know, something and then art house. And then I think around, you know, 2000, 2001, that's when the manor really kind of became a sort of stronghold art house cinema in Charlotte and became kind of the first art house cinema in Charlotte. Cause at that time, park terrace was still, a first run kind of mainstream theater. Ballantyne didn't exist yet, right? So, I mean, and I think it kind of, you know, was always kind of doing that seesaw act, but really within the 90s and then really into the 2000s, it sort of became this kind of place where people went, oh, you know, that's where you go see, like, the stuff you can see in New York. You know, that's the that's that's where you go to see the stuff that, like, you know, you, you, you read about in the New York Times or something like that, you know, those those foreign, those art house, those, especially the indie films, right? You know, the the Waking Ned Devines and the, uh, you know, again, not huge, super independent films, but like independent enough Miramax stuff that wasn't playing at the 15 or 12 screen theater that was around. Brad, at this point, what are, what are you guys doing to, to change that basically non-existent art house scene uh, in Charlotte? Well, Jay and I, um, and the film society, we've always been looking for our own venue. The, we've always been a nomadic uh, type organization. We never had a permanent home. And probably starting about five or six years ago, we, we kind of our, dipped our toe in the water and um, 
started looking around at different spaces and whatnot, but nothing ever seemed right. Either the rent was too high or we didn't have the money to invest in, in upfitting the location. And so once, once it was official that the manor is closing and was not coming back, we felt now is the time for the film side to step up. And I mean, we, we had the vision, we had the expertise. We've been around since 1982. And if there's ever going to be a time for us to do something, now is the time. So I found out, I think it was on a Saturday in May, and it took me two phone calls. And within a week, we had, we had found a location for the cinema, which... It was just amazing. So we went and looked at the space and I mean, we were just, I mean, I think our jaws hit the ground the first time we saw how ideal of a space it was, the location. And the day we met the, the landlord, he presented us with plans of how he envisioned a cinema to work into this existing warehouse. And right then we knew that we couldn't have gotten any luckier with, with what we're trying to do. So yeah, it, it's, it, it moved fast, and learning about this right away really helped in that when they were tearing down and uh, gutting the Manor Theater, we uh, were able to save a lot of the equipment, the popcorn popper, the butter machine. Uh, we have about 300 of the seats in storage. It turned out the curtains that were hanging at the Manor, the ceiling at the new space, is within about five inches of what the auditoriums at the manor were. So, you know, being a nonprofit, we're, we're trying to save money where we can. So, uh, we, you know, we're looking to use the, uh, what, what we were able to salvage from the manor and put in the new location. And then, you know, once we get our feet on the ground and we're being successful, you know, we'll look to upgrade and, and, and stuff like that. So with, is this the sort of space that you might not have been able to find in a year that it was different than 2020, which is to say, did COVID actually kind of help this space to come to you in any way? Absolutely. We were very fortunate. Uh, one thing about being a nomadic organization, we don't have the overhead costs that all the other theaters are struggling with right now. You know, we don't, we don't have to pay rent. We're all volunteer staff. So, uh, you know, we're fundraising now and none of that is going to any of the fixed costs that all the, um, you know, the Regals, AMCs, the, the other independent theaters that are already in existence, you know, they have to pay rent every month. You know, they're, they're not getting the income right now. The, the space was going to be there no matter what. Would it have been a cinema? Probably not. If the manor is still around, would the film society have taken this opportunity to branch out like we're doing? Probably not. Uh, that was one deterrent when the film society was looking in the past is, yeah, this is a, this is a great location. The rent's pretty high. And we always had the manor, you know, to compete with. So we probably wouldn't have pulled the trigger this time, but uh, it just, it makes perfect sense now. And, the location is in an up-and-coming neighborhood. It's about a quarter mile from a light rail station. So the access to it's going to be amazing. And it's, 
about two miles from uptown Charlotte and two and a half miles from uh, University of North Carolina, Charlotte. So, yeah, it's just everything fell into place. And if COVID hadn't happened, I don't think we'd be talking to you today. I'll interject here to say uh, every other city calls uh, their their city center downtown, and Charlotte is uptown. So <laughs> we don't like know it. why. I still don't get it. I've been there 15 years. I still don't. I've been here 30, and I don't get it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, nobody does. So you have uh, your fundraising on, on going fund me. You know, you're deep into those fundraising efforts. How has fundraising for a new cinema been during during COVID? When I'd, I'd imagine there are so many established cultural institutions in, in Charlotte that are fundraising too, just to stay open. I mean, I think it's going well. I, I will sort of, you know, everyone involved with the film society, we are film people. Uh, you know, Brad managed the theater for, you know, 25 plus years. I've worked in projection and worked at movie theaters and video stores for 30 years, you know, uh, other people all involved in, you know, working on, film crews and film sets. We're not fundraisers is sort of the way. So it was going to be hard no matter what for us because we're just not good at like going out and asking for money or getting grants or any of that kind of thing. We're, we're not really great marketers, right? You know, I mean, it's sort of like we, we know when we see a movie that's really awesome, we we go we got to show that movie and we and you know we know when people see it we know they'll love it but you know i i will say that you know we've gotten some good advice from some people um the foundation for the carolinas has been really helpful we've had a couple of people from the community one of them is a longtime resident artist named hard minor who has whose mother used to go to the manor she's sort of a charlotte institution cassie minor um, so sort of this woman that everyone in town sort of knows somehow, you know, right. Or she's passed on, but, you know, knew for the whole time. Of her. And so Harden, you know, Harden and, and organizations like the Foundation for the Carolinas have been really great at kind of supporting us and giving us lots of advice and being sort of the the people to sort of push us along and sort of give us the advice of what we need to do. Because ultimately, you know, I, and I don't know if Brad said this already, but in a weird way, when we knew we were going to do this, we had no doubt that the community wanted this. It was just how do you let them know that we're we're trying to raise money for this community cinema, and the, and the response has been you know great. I mean, we've had we've had a GoFundMe page, and you know, I think we're close to seven hundred you know donors, and we've raised you know a great deal of money there. You know, even though we're not trying to just recreate the manor, we're trying to sort of take the best of the manor and combine it with the best of the film society and these other kind of things. I mean, the manor was a very special sort of cultural place in Charlotte. It had a, it had a, even though it was owned by a chain, it, it sort of felt like this special little gem of a theater. And so when that when that went away, I think, you know, People immediately were like, what's the film society going to do? What are you guys going to do? So that gave us an opportunity to be more successful in the fundraising than we might have been in the past. Because it was like people were coming to us in a weird way being like, how can we help you? And it was like, oh, do, do you know anybody who, you know, does 
videos to help us make some video, you know, like to make a little pitch video or something, you know, I mean, th these kind of things, right? You know, again, it's, we're in COVID. It's, it's obviously money's tight for a lot of people. And we're very conscious of that. We're sort of saying, hey, if you don't have money, that's okay. You know, help us spread the word. If you got five bucks, you know, it's a nonprofit. So it, it goes right into the organization and goes right into the the thing. Um, and, and I think, you know, and Brad, tell me if you feel differently. I hope you don't. I, I think it's been very successful. I think people have responded. And I think the, the goal right now is to just let as many people know that, that this is happening and that it's going to be a, a, a cool place for them to come see our house and in independent cinema in Charlotte once the pandemic's over and we can start all kind of I call it munchkin landing. You know, we sort of all peek our heads out of the bushes because the Wicked Witch is dead. It's just ridiculous that a, that a city as big as Charlotte wouldn't have something. Yeah. And again, you know, Brad said it. We did. We had 13 screens, which, again, in a weird way, almost feels the opposite, right? You're like, whoa, 13 art house That's screens a lot. in Charlotte, North Carolina. Like, your brain is like... There's not that many in the Boston area, like time, you know. <laughs> There's not that many in L.A. You yeah, know? no, yeah. And <laughs> so it was sort of like this weird, shocking, like, 10-year period where, like, the manor was the art house theater. Then they built Valentine, which was its own independent thing. So there was sort of another six there. It's okay. And then when Consolidated sold to Regal, and Regal didn't quite know what to do with this other little five-screen cinema – and and I think it's also, though, because, you know, palettes have changed, right? There are a lot of these bigger art house films that documentaries like, you know, RGB and stuff, they need they need searching for Sugar Man. They need places to play and they know, well, we got to put, you know, five screens of Harry Potter or five screens of Justice League in our big cinema. So I think Regal kind of took a shot. And and again, like Brad said, they were successful. It wasn't like they were financially not successful. I think it's just, you know, re real estate always wins out. It, it seems weird to not have those screens, but it seemed weird even at the time to have 13. Like it felt like, wow, you know, but then even still, I will say as a, you know, as a programmer for the Film Society, we were always like, but what about this movie? But what about this? This movie's not playing in Charlotte. This movie's not playing in Charlotte. When I when I joined the Film Society in 2010, they were doing one screening a month. We got to the point where I think we were doing 2019. We did over 40 screenings in the year, and we were on pace in 2020 to do more than 50. I mean, we were doing a, a, a screening a week of stuff because the idea was there's all this great stuff and all this cool Indian art house stuff and foreign stuff that just is not getting seen by people. And, you know, I think even even today, not to drift off into a tangent, but, you know, with streaming, you know, people go, oh, well, streaming's great because it levels the playing field. You have access to all this stuff. But I feel like more movies are getting lost than ever now. We've had that exact conversation on this podcast yeah. many times. Uh, th this is a sympathetic audience for that. Yeah, I just rewatched Synchronic last night, and I'm like, who even remembers that movie came out? But I was I rewatched it because I hadn't seen it since TIFF, and I was thinking, this movie came out. I, did anybody see it? Yeah. And you know, maybe when it gets to something like Shutter, maybe it'll get a little one more little blip when it hits Shutter that first week, and then what after that week. You know, people just and your and your brain is can't process and see my brain can't process it because when I was rewatching that film, 
I was thinking, this has Anthony Mackie in it. This has James Dorn in it. Like, this has big name actors in it. And I don't know any, and, and you know, I know people who talk about a lot of weird, obscure things. Nobody's talking about this movie. <laughs> you know, right? Yeah. Um, so that that's where I feel like, that's why you need the, the theaters, because you need the theaters to kind of focus the attention on the film for that brief period of time. So then at least that core group of people can say, I saw that film. And then when it does hit streaming or it does hit Netflix, they say, you have to go watch this like immediately. You know, now it's like every other day something new comes out on streaming and it's like, who, who knows? Who knows? Well, I was going to I was going to ask you about streaming anyway. So <laughs> can, I, can I make a point on fundraising real fast? We've just been extremely lucky in the way the cards have fell for us and where the location we're looking at is in a it's in an opportunity zone. So the owners of the building have uh, they get a, a tax credit for developing this building. So luckily I mean, if we were to normally open up our own space like we're looking to do, uh, it's about 50, it's going to be probably about 5,700 square feet. And Jay, Jay and I looked at a space somewhere else in town a couple years ago, and we were going to have to pay all the build-out costs of the space. Build the walls, you know, the sound deadening materials and everything. And with the space that we're currently looking at and uh, you know, soon to sign a lease on with this tax credit, the owners have to spend this. They're getting money back for spending money. So instead of us looking to have to raise like say $800,000 to just to provide the shell of the cinema, the owners of the building are going to spend. And again, it's not that expensive, but uh, they're going to be spending lots of money to provide the warm shell to us. And uh, that's money that we don't have to raise. So are the money that we're fundraising for projection equipment, sound equipment, uh, you know, install the seats, build the concession stand, decorate the lobby. The owners of the building are even providing finished restrooms for us. So under normal situations, I mean, there's no way the film society would have been able to afford that I mean, we'd be raising money for ten years. So again, it's just—I mean, you hate to think that COVID's something positive, but in this situation, it really helped us to get where we are currently and progress into opening the cinema. When I last spoke to you, you said you were kind of aiming for end of year 2021 for opening up. Is that still the case? Do you think or? That's what that's what we're hoping. The city of Charlotte is extremely difficult. They are not pro small business. <laughs> I shouldn't say this. Somebody's going to listen to it and say, "I remember you when I come to inspect." Well, it's a it's a city famous for having headquarters of like large banks. So yeah, yeah. But I mean, you just hear horror stories. Uh, another space that we looked at to possibly open a cinema. Uh, they opened a restaurant right next to next door to where the cinema was potentially going to be. And I think they were delayed. Gosh, Jay, what was it? 12 months just because every time they went for an inspection, the inspector, you know, would flag something else. And, uh, but no, I mean, to answer your question, uh, we, we, 
really, really hope to be open no later than end of 2021. Yeah. And obviously I would just, I would just, you know, tag on to that, that, you know, COVID is going to dictate a lot and obviously vaccine distribution is going to dictate a lot and all that. Right. I mean, I, I think I agree with Brad. I'm, I'm optimistic that I think, you know, the development group that's owns the building has whatever relationship they have with the city and permitting and all that, you know, it, it, COVID will really dictate, I think, when we get towards the fall and into the winter, whether or not we're able to open. I wanted to ask you about the, how do you approach programming for an independent art house cinema that's opening in, you know, fingers crossed 2021? If memory serves, the manor played played more, um, I mean, focus features, searchlight titles, you know, kind of the the more accessible mainstream category of of independent cinema, whereas Charlotte Film Society kind of was able to go a little bit more, uh, you know, more niche, more obscure with it. And then on the other side of things, you know, increasingly with independent cinemas and even with major chains in 2020, we're seeing them go towards programming more streaming titles. Netflix movies, Apple movies, Amazon movies. And, you know, we don't know if that's something that's going to, uh, you know, stop or, or dial back once the pandemic stops and we actually have more films. But, you know, just in a more general sense, it's looking like among exhibitors, there's a lot more flexibility towards, hey, we can play a Netflix movie. What's the balance that you're looking to strike between you know, maybe streaming titles or titles that are more accessible and then titles that uh, maybe people wouldn't have heard of, but you want to champion? I mean, again, you know, the, the, the simple answer to that question is is all of the above, right? I mean, it's, I think we obviously are understanding of the fact that we have to bring those bigger art house titles, you know, you have because whether it's because we genuinely really love the, those films and want to share with our audience or it's, you know, this is the movie that people want to see and they want to see it in the theater. So there is initially this combination of kind of bringing what the manor brought, which is the bigger searchlight, you know, uh, Samuel Gold, Goldwyn films, you know, those kind of things, uh, the, the focus features, combining it with, you know, I guess the more obscure or smaller art house and independent films from, you know, Kim Stim and, and uh, you know, uh, Oscilloscope and, and places like that. And then, uh, but then also even too, like doing some repertory programming that we've never really had the opportunity to do. You know, Kino does a lot of restorations that that they'll put out of, of, you know, older classic films or, or maybe older independent and foreign films that, you know, we just couldn't do because we didn't have a space. I think the real way to solve the puzzle here is, you know, we'll have three screens. One of them will be a micro cinema, but it'll still be a, a working screen, you know, a 30 seat little micro cinema, but we'll have three screens, one more than the manor had. And I think our approach to programming is really going to be not so, parochial on what the manor and park terrace and ballantyne and most theaters do which is you got to run a movie four times a day seven days a week you know for some movies you might have to do that you have parasite that opened at the manor on two screens four you know four screenings a day that might be a film that you have to run four screenings a day every day in that big auditorium and just let it run right 
But I think, you know, and Brad and I used to talk about this at the Manor all the time when we would sit there, we'd go, why, why aren't there two movies on that screen? Why aren't there three movies? You know, because of the film society programming, you know, most of our programming for the film society were one-offs up until about a year ago when we started doing uh, week-long runs at a micro cinema at a video store, VizArt Video, who's a sort of partner with us. And we were like, well, we want to bring the mountain, right? And we want to run it once a night for 25 people. And, you know, over the course of a week, 130 people come see that movie, 140. So I think there's, you know, those opportunities where you can bring a film for a full run for seven days. You can screen a film for a weekend and maybe run it, you know, four four screenings a day for the weekend. That's sort of the, Russ, we were talking earlier, that's sort of the Brattle model, you know, right? The Brattle will bring a movie in just for that little window. You can do double feature retro things if you're doing something like that. You could just say, we have a series at the Film Society called the Back Alley Film Series, which is more transgressive, kind of weirder, you know, stuff. Maybe that movie only plays at nine o'clock every night, right? Once once a night during the week. So I think that's the puzzle where we're not going to be like, oh, we have three screens and we have three movies playing this week. We'll have three screens. And, you know, I could envision easily 10 different films playing over the course of may- maybe more, maybe more, right? I mean, in dealing with these film distributors, I think the thing, I mean, obviously every distributor wants a full run, seven days, and you're going to have to negotiate that with them, right? Focus is probably going to say, you know, we need this for this. And you go, okay. But some of these distributors are like, no, that's great. Even if our film's only playing once a day and and it's getting marketed and it's getting out there and people are getting to see it, it might mean the run runs longer. Um, So I think that's how I at least envision, you know, the, the, the programming going and sort of fixing the puzzle is not being so parochial to that kind of, that window to mention one other thing is you know you talked about netflix or you know other streaming services that we had already started doing that with the with the film society when when you know films like uh, roma or films like dolomite is my name or the irishman or marriage story when when none of these films were going to get played in theaters we reached out to netflix and said we'll rent a cinema for for a screening like we'll go to our people who we know we'll rent a venue a 180 seat cinema and we'll do three screenings of the Irishman or two screenings of Roma or we did a single of marriage story and Dolomite. So we envision that, you know, that will and should continue because, you know, I think that there are people who want to see certain films on a big giant movie screen with an audience. Right. Um, And again, Dolomite is my name is like a perfect example. That's a movie about the power of seeing a movie on the big screen. Like that's, that's the yeah, big that third act conclusion of the film. Yeah, but, but seeing that movie with an audience is sort of, I like, I can't imagine sitting at home. I mean, I can, I would like it, but you know, I, I, again, not to go again off a slight tangent, but I, I, Brad and Brad and I kind of have a similar philosophy. When we go to, when we go to festivals, if we know a distributor has a film or we know a movie is going to play, in Charlotte, oh, it's going to open in Charlotte in four weeks. The Martian, right? Yeah. You know, it's playing at TIFF, but it's why go? Why go to go. see that? No, yeah. you don't go. You see something you've never heard of. <laughs> but I went and saw Dolomite at TIFF that year because I knew, like, this movie's not going to play in Charlotte. I I want to see this movie with a crowd of people because it's going to be hilarious. And of course, it was right. And then as soon as you see it, then you're like, okay, 
how are we going to get, we got to get this movie to people. We have to, right? Like, um, and again, this is where I think being a, you know, all volunteer organization, being a nonprofit, we, we're able to take some risks that maybe a, you know, a corporate minded kind of business modeled thing just can't, right? Or again, a, a smaller mom and pop that's like, we got to rent, we got to pay every month that, that is a very different thing, right? And so I think programming-wise, everything is on the table for me. Now, obviously, the, the fundamental mission of the Film Society was if it's not playing in Charlotte, we're going to bring it. We'll have to expand that a little bit. We'll have to, you know, because there might be, like Brad was saying, you know, if Emma's playing at Stonecrest, which is another theater on the other side of town, but that seems to fit our audience the best, you know, yeah, we might have to bring a movie like that and throw it in. But then that's the thing. We might not have to, maybe it's only three screenings a day. And that gives us an opportunity to put in, you know, Amulet from IFC, you know, at, at nine o'clock at night. So we can go, hey, there's also this really neat little independent horror film um, that you can see from the UK. Let me let me interject one thing real quick. Along those lines, as you were doing film society screenings uh, more often in 2019, was there any title that you played that, surprised you in the way that people received it or was there anything that that helped kind of set a pattern and make you think oh we can do more of this sort of thing when we have our own space i think our audience is very consistent we pretty much know when we play a film and again we had three different series with the film society we pretty much know who's going to be attending and we have a built-in audience for you know a foreign film, a film from, say, Poland or, you know, one of the back alley films. Uh, we pretty much know who's going to attend this. So I'll say it's we never get surprised, but it's we're pretty consistent with who turns out. But I will say, too, you know, and again, it's with with the back alley films, which which, again, I started because I went to a festival and I saw 12. Uh, I think it's. 13 Assassins. Sorry, I knew that was wrong. I saw that movie at a festival with, you know, 200 people. And afterwards I was like, I can't believe I'm not good when people in Charlotte aren't going to be able to see this movie. So I went to the film society and said, we need to start a series where we show these crazy movies. But what we've started to see is, is as we've kind of stayed, stayed with back alley and you know, the numbers fluctuate, you get a bigger film, maybe people are more, more people come to see it. We're, we're, we started to see towards in 2019 People who would only go to the, you know, the French dramas and the, you know, the Polish, you know, comedy or what, I guess the other way around, French comedies, Polish dramas. Um, what is a Polish comedy? Yeah. Yeah. What is the Polish? You the know, lure? Is the lure a Polish oh, comedy? The dramas, the more sort of international foreign films, the Juliette Binoche, you know, stuff. They started to bleed over into that back alley thing. There was a, there was an interesting, and I can't remember what movie it was, but there was a handful of movies. I think they were mostly like a film like Lemon, right? You know, English language, but like seemed like a quieter movie. Didn't seem like Blood and Guts. There were a few movies like that. I think we screened Harpoon earlier this year at the very beginning of the year, and I think because it didn't seem like it was so out of you know left field like a like a 13 assassins or every once in a while you know we would bring something a, 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 for back alley because it didn't quite fit in the sort of traditional cine club like we do a guy madden film right you know 
and, and but they would come and I so I think there there was this you know there became this trust a little bit where it's sort of like okay we're not really sure what these these transgressive films are and we would probably never go see them but we've started to trust that maybe there's something to them and again most of the time they'd go Ugh. you know a, a Polish mermaid musical what the hell was that you know <laughs> it was but, an awesome movie is what it was yeah but yes, but I so I think that's the beauty of again ultimately when we talk programming for the cinema is you know we we kind of know okay Judy Dench has a you know best exotic marigold three coming out yeah the 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 Manor crowd a good core portion of our audience is going to love that movie bring it give it to them there's no reason not to but then also there is this hunger for some of the people within our core audience and to bring new people in. Right. I mean, it constantly, you know, 2020 is the year where people are finally talking about, you know, inclusion and diversity and all these kind of things. So that's where you can sort of say, well, here's a movie that's completely outside of the realm of anything you've seen. And I think if you have a space where they trust, they do some interesting things here. There will be people who go see Best Exotic Marigold Hotel and then say, what's this other movie? What's this other film? Brad, what are your thoughts on that in terms of, I mean, it sounds like you're creating almost in in meshing Charlotte Film Society and Manor, creating a whole different blueprint for for programming in Charlotte. Yeah, absolutely. We um, came up with this kind of a slogan, rebuilding better, kind of borrowed and maybe off Biden's campaign slogan a little bit, but uh, that's what we're trying to do. We're, I mean, we obviously got to pay the bills, like Jay said, so we're going to play the, the, the bigger art titles, uh, and we want to, absolutely, but then the film society always prided itself in these, I never get, I never know exactly how to phrase it, smaller films, and that's maybe derogatory, but, um, the, you know, the films that maybe people don't know about, and uh, we also want, I mean, we haven't even touched on the educational component of it, but maybe that's for a, another podcast. But no, we, we definitely want to build up a following, which the film society already has, the manor already has. And there's definitely a lot of overlap there. But we want to, like Jade mentioned, we want people to come see movies at the cinema and know that. It might not be their favorite movie, but it's interesting and they're glad that they came. So it's, it's building up the trust with the with the, the consumers that, um, yeah, you know, I've never heard of this film, but shoot, if, if they're playing it, yeah, I'll go take a look at it. So and, and getting back to the, the, the programming question, and Jay kind of alluded to this, but I, I know he and I, we want to play everything we can. We don't have to play it, uh, you know, four times a day for a week. But if we can play it, you know, one show a day for a week, I believe most of the, the uh, distributors will be happy with those type of agreements. I mean, Jay and I, and I'm, I'm sure if both of you go to Toronto, we get spoiled. I see 40, 45 movies in eight days. And, you know, half of those movies, well, probably more than from <laughs> the movies I see, more than half of those never make it to America and Jay and I've reached out to foreign. I mean, we, we talked to um, distributors in France and I mean, if we really liked a movie, we saw at TIFF, we would reach out to him and, and we brought movies that, you know, nowhere else in, in the U S is playing them. 
because we believe in that type of this type of movies. Yeah, I, I will just add one one more thing, which is, and I think it's really important to say, just because, you know, it's not like we're inventing this either. There are, there are lots of places in the United, you know, again, the Brattles come up already. One, I mean, the Brattle does this. You know, it's a, it's a one screen. And look at their calendar they put together for a month. I mean, the IFC Center in New York, you look any given week, it's like 15 films. <laughs> easily three or four cinemas. IFC, the Angelica, right? Yeah. yeah, I mean, so I think the thing is, is going all the way back to that, there's no art house cinemas. It's sort of like, okay, how if we're starting from scratch and we're not regulated by this corporate chain that sort of is, it's easy for just us throw, to throw two movies in. And, and again, this is where the ego comes in a little bit. I think we have the crew that can do it, or we think we have the crew that can do it. Because again, we want to bring these movies. We want people to go see No Country for Old Men and then watch The Lore, right? You know, it's like, because they're, they're both great movies. And and the idea is the more we can bring, and ultimately, you know, I, I program the Charlotte Film Festival, and I'm a big advocate and fan of filmmakers. Mm-hmm. So sometimes there are films that you might go, ah, it might not be the greatest movie, like, oh, it's, but you sort of are like, there's something to this person's work, and there's an understanding in your brain of, if you can get their work seen, that helps them make the next, you know, there's a reason why Adam Wingard's directing King Kong versus Godzilla, because when he was making smaller films, People supported those movies, even if they weren't perfect, but it gave him some credibility. It let him build his skills up. And, you know, if those films didn't have small art house theaters, festival programmers, putting his work in front of people, he wouldn't be directing the next big, you know, action blockbuster. Well, I think there are two points that kind of combine that are important here, which that have come up separately, which is the idea that uh, movies get lost on streaming, which relates to the idea that, you know, movies kind of need that whole promotional cycle. They need to go into theaters so that there are trailers, so that there are other promotional materials out there so that people know about them. But the other thing that can substitute for that is exactly what you've talked about, which is building a trust with an audience where, you know, maybe for movies that don't have that big promotional cycle, you guys can put them on a screen and your audience understands, oh, okay, we can trust this and I don't need to have seen six trailers. I'm just going to go see it because it's got this imprint behind it. It's got the backing of these couple of people who have, uh, you know, done well for me at other, when I've gone to see other films. And so building that trust is, seems to me to be like the most important thing that you could possibly have done. And if you can rely on that going forward, then you're potentially in a terrific position. But to finish up, let me ask, you know, is there anything else you wanted to say or, or where can people go to find out more information about the Charlotte Film Society? And But one thing we haven't even talked about are the, the ever-changing theatrical windows. And I think that could definitely help an organization like ours where uh, I know on one of your previous podcasts, I think a couple of weeks ago, you had mentioned, I think it was uh, Universal and Focus Features, if a film doesn't gross $50 million opening weekend, it goes down to a 17-day theatrical window. And that's going to, I think that could really reinvent the way we book films. Because I'm sure if they're only going to give us 17 days to, to show a film before they start streaming it, then 
that will give us, I believe, freedom and flexibility to say at the end of that period that, all right, well, you're streaming now. Normally, you know, back in, in the days of the manor, I was always like pulling my hair out. Why are we still showing this movie when, you know, we're getting 10 people a day for it? I, I think that's going to allow us to potentially drop films faster and thus bring more film in. That's a good point. I mean, it, the, the the model is is definitely shifting, you know, definitely getting a lot more flexible uh, with the with the change in windows. You know, many people have kind of speculated that the theatrical experience is going to go more towards the big flashy tent walls. And maybe people are going to get more used to seeing these these mid range titles you know, on streaming platforms, but, but, but talking to the both of you, it definitely seems like there's an, an appetite to see those sorts of films on the big screen. It's just the way that that you approach things from a programming and operational perspective has to shift. I agree. So, uh, thank you guys so much uh, for joining us to chat today. Uh, You can go to charlottefilmsociety.com to keep up with uh, what's going on with the Charlotte Film Society and their new theater. Hopefully it's, uh, it's sooner rather than later and that Charlotte, you know, good old Charlotte red tape doesn't, doesn't trip you up. And there's a donate button on that website for anyone who wants to, uh, wants to kick in $5, $10, however much, uh, you know, people can do in, in this, in this really awful time still, but thank you. Thank you both so much. It's been great to have you. Thanks for having me. Thanks guys. Thank you. Yeah. It's been good. Take care. Thanks to Jay and Brad and to everyone listening today. The Box Office Podcast is produced by recordeditpodcast.com. This episode was written by Russ Fisher, Daniel Maria, and me, Rebecca Polly. We'll be back next week, by which time, hopefully, the AMC stock situation will have settled down a little bit and we'll know where we're ending up. Take care. Have a great one. Bye.